0: Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of In Harmony with Piedmont Opera. This is an exciting time to be doing episodes because we are coming up on the opening of the next Piedmont Opera performance of Il Trovatore. Did I get that right? You how did, did I do on that? You did great. You okay. Did great. That that other voice that you hear is is our guest today, one of the performers in this show. His name is Brian Banyan, and he has been a longtime performer with Piedmont Opera. Brian, how are you? I'm doing
1: well. Thank you. Thank you. How are you doing?
0: Very excited to, to visit with you on, on, a, on a number of topics. But uh, first, I would just love to hear you first speak on your level of excitement. And I don't know if it's excitement yet. Maybe it's a little bit of exhaustion because you've been doing rehearsals and, and it's been a, long, a, lot, a lot of long days and nights in getting ready for this show. But h- how are you feeling as we are recording this uh, a week
1: before opening night? Well, I'm feeling great. It's, uh, you know... It, uh... It's always great to be in Winston-Salem. I thought I was not going to be at the Stevens Center for this show. I thought we were going to be in High Point because mm-hmm. I understand that they're renovating and this is the, actually the last show in the Stevens Center. And so I'm kind of excited about that because yeah. uh, I've done a lot of shows in the Stevens Center. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I've gone through some health challenges which I believe we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, it's not negative if I say I'm exhausted I'm in everything hurts, you know, but... <laughs> but uh rather you know it's uh, i'm really excited to get on stage at the Stevens center one more time and see uh and see what we can do you know i think it's going to be a great show mhm
0: yeah so we'll we'll talk about the show here in, in just a little while but let's let's go ahead and, and, and jump in because the the story and of what you've gone through in your life and the things that you've overcome from a health perspective um i'll i'll just kind of ask you to share what you would like to share about uh some of the things that that you have had to, to overcome from a health perspective?
1: Well, um, in 2018, I, I was, uh, diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which is a, depending on who you ask, it's a bone cancer. It's a blood cancer. It's a bone marrow cancer, but it's, it's, it's one of the blood cancers and it's actually uh, a blood plasma Mm -hmm. problem. And so that's made by the bone marrow it's in the bones. And so I guess everybody's right. But, um, I remember I was diagnosed with it and I, I searched Google for what is that, you know, and found that they have a, uh, that the cancer centers uh, brag about a four to five year survival rate.
0: Hmm. Well,
1: so, you know, that was, was that five years ago? Yeah, that was five years ago. Yeah. And so here I am. Um, but I, you know, I don't know how to say uh, what it felt like to find that out, but I kept working and I didn't tell anybody. Like the last time I was here, Uh, Was for Elixir of Love. I was singing Dulcamara, and I had to negotiate in the initial talks with uh, Jamie Albritton. I had to negotiate a a couple days off so I could go home and have chemo. Mm. I was in a clinical trial at that time, so I drove home to Columbus, Ohio. At one point, and and got chemo at like four in the morning, you know, and then drove home, drove back to drove home, drove here to Winston Salem, and and went to rehearsal. Actually, had Mm. rehearsal that same day. And no one knew what was going on. you know no one knew I was sick i don 't know if anyone noticed I mean, you know but uh, I got through that show and and you know no problem and but yeah uh, and this was what year that you were you were doing this back that and was two thousand and eighteen okay and uh, i had had I was having hip pain, uh, bad hip pain, and had an aida coming up and and went to a doctor to see about the hip pain. And they said, oh, you've got bursitis and wanted to give me a steroid shot. And I said, no, you're not giving me a steroid shot. You didn't even touch me. You know? And so turns out that's the smartest thing I ever did because a couple doctors later, we find out what the problem was. And so, oh, wow. It was April 2nd. I'll never forget it. And my wife, uh, Elise Deschamps, had a, uh, was working on her doctorate at the time and was doing a recital that night. And I had to, a small part in it. To, I had to perform just a little bit. I wasn't singing. It was a speaking part. And then I was going to turn pages, and so I didn't tell her about the cancer until after. And so after the recital, she are in the back, and she says, "Okay, what's wrong?" <laughs> and I, to tell you the truth, I don't remember telling her. I don't remember telling my daughter. You know, it's a, those there's some of those trauma things that kind of disappear. But anyway, we can. I continued to perform. Didn't really tell anyone about it. And my last show I was on was pre-pandemic. You know, when the when the pandemic shut everything down in March of whatever year that was. Was that Was that twenty? Twenty twenty. Yeah. Um, and I was on a Barber of Seville in Utah, in Salt Lake City, after twelve weeks removed from a hip replacement, and. Uh, Oh, that was awful. (laughs) That was so terrible. (laughs) Walking back and forth to rehearsal, you know, and and I didn't want anyone to know I was sick. And so I I carried, I have it in my backpack right here with me, a collapsible cane. And I had it in my backpack. I would walk to rehearsal and I would, once I got away from the place, the hotel where we all were living, I would get on back streets and use the cane to get to within a, maybe a block of the rehearsal, and then I would put the cane in my backpack so no one would see to it. To hide and I would Yeah, and no one knew. No one knew what was wrong. This yeah. may
0: seem like an obvious question, but why was it so important to hide
1: that from people? I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I think I was a little nervous that if if companies, if the business found out what I was going through, they would, they would reject me. Uh, you know, I mean, because if you hire someone... Eight months, twelve months, eighteen months out, and their health is in peril. Maybe they don't. Maybe you hire someone else. You know. And so, I just don't want to tell anybody. Plus, I, you know, I, you're a performer and you have a public life and everything. But I'm quite quiet and I'm quite personal and I'm quite uh, personal. I'm quite. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Private. You know, mm-hmm. it's, I don't. Sure. I don't necessarily want my my business out there. And I, I just wasn't ready. I don't think to share that. I, very few people knew about it. Yeah. Very very few people knew. Um, but when we decided to start, you know, we went to Mayo Clinic. We went to uh, – we consulted during the pandemic with a doctor in – Dr. Hari in uh, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we started down a path. No one might, uh, I, I you know, the cancer centers brag about four to five years of survival and so and everyone that looked at me said, Ooh, you're in trouble. Ooh, you're in trouble because the the chemo they were giving me wasn't really working. And all these I had four hip surgeries, I had two scopes trying to avoid hip replacement and then two hip replacements. And uh yeah. It's at one point I said to my doctor, So so chemotherapy is a dead end for me, right? And he says, Yes, absolutely. The keep the cancer. Yes, had absolutely gone was yeah. the answer. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He didn't even think about it. And so imagine being in that appointment and the doctor says that to you and I didn't cry. I didn't you know, I was stoic.
0: How yeah, I almost think you you just you would be numb to hear something like that you yeah. how do you, you react to that? well yeah i mean we, but you that. get
1: to by that point you've heard no good news right. for years it just everything's bad everything's bad everything's bad and so and you just kind of get used to it to the point that when when we found out uh the great news in march of this year that well the cancer is gone you know and i beat it and uh they're calling it remission but i think i'm cured i really do uh but when they told us that like my family, it's, like we, it's my wife and daughter. The three of us fought like cats and dogs all weekend. And we looked at each other and we thought, why are we fighting? Shouldn't we be happy right now? <laughs> it's so complicated. But that, you know, we didn't know how to deal with the good news. It was really difficult to deal with. And how do you believe it when you've, you know, the, your life has just taught you that it's going to be bad from now on? You, know? you say that,
0: and, and my first question
1: is, how did that happen? Well, and I had uh, the, the last things they did to me were stem cell transplants and for multiple myeloma, most people can, there are, there are, it's a weird cancer. It, uh, they say that no person, no two people have the same reaction to it or whatever, or symptoms, or, t- or, like, or no two people test as having the same uh, problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, for most people in multiple myeloma, a stem cell transplant will put them in remission. Uh, I had two of them and they call that a tandem transplant and they do that when you have, when you have the kind of multiple myeloma that is going to kill you. And so they, it's more serious, they call that high risk. And so I had genetic abnormalities that was going to, that were going to make it. So this wasn't going to work. And so I had two stem cell transplants back to back, you know, they do it as fast as they can. And, uh, and the second transplant and and the transplant procedure, do you want to hear about this or not? I mean, go ahead. Well, share on, share as much as you would like to. They, they give you high-dose chemo, and they kill all your bone marrow. And that's where the cancer is. And so theoretically, then they give you your stem cells back, and it grows your bone marrow back. And that's kind of the antidote to the treatment, which is the huh. chemo. And so the second stem cell transplant I had, and this is where it, it like, man, it was so dark in that time. The, that's, they killed all my bone marrow, and the cancer number didn't change at all. And this is where I said to the doctor, so chemotherapy is a dead end, yeah. because you just did the worst to me and it didn't do anything. And, right. He says, yes, that's true. And so, um, the, third, so the, the doctor in Milwaukee had recommended our course of action, which was to have, try the tandem transplant. And if it doesn't work, because they assumed it might not work for me, looking at what I, what I had, then immediately have this third transplant using a donor's cells. And these first two, they used my cells. And that, tr- that treatment, they don't do in multiple myeloma. They were doing it, like, I think in the 90s, and it was killing 30% of the people who were having it. And so, you know, the risk outweighs the reward. And I looked at my doctor and said, because my, my hematologist was saying, well, I know this other doctor uh, in in Wisconsin who, parenthetically, my doctor had done his residency with this man, so they know each other. And he says, well, I know that Hari really believes in this procedure, but it's, it's really controversial, and I'm going to have to do some research. So my next appointment with him was an hour and a half where he laid out, Here's, here are the benefits, here are the risks, here are the, and I, I just thought that the data, uh, let's step back, the the multiple myeloma, I'm awfully young to have had multiple myeloma. I was diagnosed at 45 years old, mm. and you're supposed to be 70, you mm. know, you're supposed to be an older person. And so one of the things they said to me initially was that they since I'm young, I was young, and since I was healthy. He says we can be really mean to you, and so they did and uh but i said I thought about that when they when we were looking at this choice of whether or not to do this, and I said, you know i I think that i don't fit the the data the data is from seventy year old people mm-hmm. and so I think i 'll survive this and i and if you survived the procedure, the numbers were pretty good, and so I said, let's do it. So there we go. And, and uh, so he, he passed me off to another doctor because the, the apparently after the transplant, it's fairly artful. And I've found that out now. I have graft versus host disease now. Um, an interesting thing that will make everybody understand what graft versus host disease is, is that my daughter had genetic testing uh, after I had this transplant. She's, going, she's in genet, studying genetics in school. And so it was, it was part of that. And they took my blood and my wife's blood. And I am no longer my daughter's blood relative. Oh. Yeah. And so that, so it, w- when you understand that, that my blood and my immune system, my bone marrow, everything, is someone else, is another set of DNA. And while it's matched very well to my body, the, you know technology is something. Yeah. Um, the, it does recognize my tissues, which are still my DNA, as being foreign. And so that immune system can really do anything to me until it stops. You know, they said the rest of my life I, I'm kind of subject to who knows what. Yeah. And so the things that can happen to me are pretty extreme. It's pretty pretty wild. That is a transplant that I've never heard of. That, that is
0: wild. Yeah,
1: and it, it worked. It worked. Yeah. And I they're calling it, like I said, they're calling it remission. Uh, but in multiple myeloma, most of the the, the, tran- the treatment in a transplant is eradication, mm-hmm. and so then the cancer grows back because it's present still in your body in small, you know, in undetectable mm-hmm. uh, amounts. And but that's not what this. The treatment I just had was the the, the immune system is the treatment, and so I I test now. Before I had maybe, you know, when you look in my chart, I don't know if you have ever looked in my chart and you yep. have red flags when the th- then things are abnormal. I, at one point, I had like 150 things oh wrong. I mean, I'm goodness. just estimating, but everything was wrong yeah. when I, it, back in 2018. And, uh, in fact, I said it to the doctor that day in the hospital that, that I said, well, what about all these other, th-? she's looking at this one red flag. And I said, what about all these other things? And she said, well, these other things will make you sick, but this number will kill you. Mm. And so all those red flags are gone. I am, I have one thing wrong with me now. And there's a little hole in my immune system that they're patching with a monthly, uh, infusion, mm-hmm. which is a little bit of a pain in the neck, but it's not that big a deal compared to everything that's gone on. Yeah. But, uh somehow I can still sing after all that and here I am you know it's I'm a walking evidence of miracles yeah i'll say i i have
0: i have so many follow up questions i'm not sure where to start <laughs> i'll start maybe back as as cuz i'm i'm still fascinated by the still trying to perform right after you had the diagnosis and and taking a you know, having to, to physically struggle to get to rehearsals, but trying to make sure that you seemed like everything was okay. How difficult was it to go through the the strenuous process of preparing for a show while you're in, in physical decline? Well, you know,
1: that's, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I kind of try not to feel sorry for myself right now, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with the aches and pains that I've got because, oh, man, everything hurts. But uh, I joke with with friends who say, how you doing? And I say, well, I said, if I were you, I'd be in the hospital right now, but I'm fine. (laughs) Um, But I try to remember the way it was, you know, because I was sick for for several years Mm -hmm. and struggling through it. I would be in, you know, it was just normal for me to go home after rehearsal or after a show. And I had Trader Joe's frozen corn on my hips, knees and ankles every night mm. you know and uh when i was in salt lake city after that uh, hip transplant i actually sat in a bath of ice water like i was so desperate to to try to find relief yeah and i i laid in a bath of ice water for 20 minutes and i had to to drag myself to the bed that night because i couldn't walk i realized what a horrible i couldn't feel my feet couldn't feel my legs <laughs> and i was shivering all night couldn't get warm hilarious um but i try i think back about that because i man Life was hard before all that. Yeah. And but I had energy and I had you know, I was healthy. I just had pain. You know, it's no big deal. And so uh so I I try to think back to that now to to, to remember that, you know, this isn't the first time it's been hard. Mm-hmm. It's just hard differently now. Yeah. And so I'm kinda used to living where things are a little difficult. But, the, you know, it's I've if anyone should feel happy about being on stage right now, it should be me. And I just have to keep remembering that. Yeah. So, so then how are you living right now? I'm doing great. i you know, it's, uh, I go home and I, I, I ice at night and my back hurts and my knees hurt and my, you know, everything. I think I have a torn meniscus in both knees, but Mm. we're just dealing with that. I showed up with a cane and I, you know, I don't use it. But if I, if that meniscus kind of thing, flares up on me, I, I walk around with a cane a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, but man, I'm doing great, I, I get up in the mornings are difficult, it's hard to walk around, it's hard, I'm awfully nauseous in the mornings, and mm. so, but I don't have to do anything in the morning here, and if I, for like for the matinee, I'll get up really early, and uh, I soak in a hot bath, The, the you guys have me, uh, the Alvar company has me at the Brookstown Inn, and the guys at the Brookstown Inn are really taking uh, good care of me, and they have a huge bathtub in my room, and they I agree. spend, hours a day in that bathtub with Epsom salt and trying mm. to get my, my back to kind of loosen up and everything to be fine and everything. But, you know, I think it back, I, I, it seems like I'm doing a lot, but I've been doing this for a very long time at mm-hmm. this point. And, yeah. uh, you know,
0: it's not, not that big a deal. So in those, in those five years between the diagnosis and, and today, how much were you able to perform to stay sharp, to work on your, on your
1: crafts? What were, what was that time like? Well, I, during the pandemic, um, you know, when everyone was kind of locked down, Mm -hmm. I was, well, I mean, each one of the transplants had me in hospital quarantine, not at home, but in a hospital, like in a, the room was really high tech. It had, uh, it was pressurized. So germs wouldn't come in from the hallway. And of course, the door was always closed. The door could not be open Mm. and you weren't allowed to talk to the other people, the other patients and whatnot. And anyone who came in had to be masked and had to wash their hands and use hand sanitizer. It was a and they came in every day and and washed the walls, washed the floors, the bedding. I had to shower with uh, that. Uh, pink soap that you use when you have a surgery. Mm-hmm. You know, I to shower with that every day. I mean, the the trying to avoid infection because you had no immune system whatsoever. Sure. And then I would go home and you go home to recover and get ready for the next one. Try to build your strength up, try to get, you know, and, and uh, trying to walk, trying to exercise, trying, trying, trying again, trying not to get sick. But there's a pandemic. And so I went in the basement and my wife would put food at the top of the stairs, plate of food, supper, breakfast, mm-hmm. lunch, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I would go up and get it, or she would bring it down with a mask on. And I lived separate from my family for, for I don't know, a year and a half or two years, oh something like that. I just came upstairs uh, a little more than a year ago and started living with my family again. And uh, I can't tell you how awful that was. I, 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 I can't imagine. I really yeah. can't tell you. So the really, the pandemic is really ending kind of... Now for me. We we moved during all during the pandemic, we moved to Iowa City from Columbus, Ohio. And so, like, just as a for instance for what my life has been, since we've been there what, three years, four years? It's mm-hmm. two thousand yeah. So we moved there three years ago, and I don't have any friends. Like my friends are nurses.
0: The people you, you know? saw all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: don't I haven't spoken to people other than I don't know that I have a neighbor across the street that comes and talks sure. to me all the yeah, time. Yeah. Um, but you know, everyone says, how do you like Iowa? And I said, well, you know, I can't wait to live there. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, during, during all that time, um, I kept singing. And if I, if I, if you ask me why, cause I'd never thought I'd sing again. I thought I was done. I mm-hmm. just, you know, each one of those procedures I thought would, okay, this will be the one that kills me. You know, and I mean, throat wise, I'll be done singing after this. And uh, every time, you know, every new chemo drug, every new, you know, I mean, it was killing my, like the chemo, like my, my kidneys would shut down, you know, and they're like, you have to come in immediately. We have to take, you know, I went through horrible stuff and I kept thinking, well, you know, there's no way I'll sing after this. Yeah. And, you know, if I live, I'll be completely debilitated and there's no way I'll be able to... uh, you know that's done. That part of my life is over, and I was—I'd come really had come to peaceful terms with that, and no big deal. I mean, I've had a, a really satisfying career, and so something else now. You know, but not that. You know, but I and I sang "Canto uh, mio ben," which is a a a song that beginning singers sing. You know, every beginning singer, every person who sings, has sung this song. Okay, and it's the easiest song in the world. And I thought, there's no way I can hurt myself singing this song because you know I was taking immense amount of steroids, which are supposed to be the devil for us as singers. But I was taking those steroids and performing. You know, prior to that, and I was oh man, because with the chemo come steroids. And so when I was hiding it from everybody, I was also on a thing that could have killed my throat at any time and it was careful 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 but i kept seeing Calo Mio Band, you know in the shower hmm. and somehow i you know and my wife and i would talk about singing from from upstairs i i check in every now and then for the, at the beginning of the pandemic she would she uh would reserve hancher auditorium like the biggest venue on campus at the university of iowa mm-hmm. And I would, she would let me go in there, and I'd take my mask off in an empty theater, completely empty theater, and sing in that big space. Oof! You know how how lucky am I to have oh a? Oh my gosh! You know, yeah. She really understood that I I needed to, uh, you know, if I needed to to let that dog run in a bigger space than the basement. Mm. You know, because that's why I've been singing for two years in the basement. So that was one semester. I, I got to go. It was it for a full year? I don't know. I can't remember at this yeah. time, but I got you know one hour of, of a week. I would go to this place, and of course, I couldn't sing for an hour, but I'd sing until I would get exhausted, and mm-hmm. and I had to sit down to sing because it made me so dizzy to try to sing. Um, but I don't, I, you know, I don't know how I can still sing. I really i don't i don't understand, and uh, but here I am. Yeah, yeah. I
0: want to go back for for a second to what what it was like during the pandemic you're in a basement and you're you're having to be quarantined for so many different reasons and just not even seeing your family for that
1: time what were the things that helped get you through that you know i had a lot of friends uh who would check in on me a lot and and uh you know that means a lot you know people sent sent uh care packages and stuff. Well, mm-hmm. A board member here, Chip Baxter sent me a, uh, an amplifier, like an audiophile amplifier to for my stereo cuz I got really into my stereo uh during that time and he sent me an amplifier. Here, I, you know, play around with this maybe and I and it really you know, I got care packages from uh people from Ohio, mm-hmm. you know, people from Canada, uh, North Carolina, you know, all over the place and and, and that really 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 helps yeah and i to this day like now it, it i have a different every time i think about someone i send them a text or i send them a message and i say hey just thinking about you how you doing because man to reach out to someone who needs it and you never know what someone's going through you know yeah uh but yeah i had i had i made friends with a bunch of uh old guys you know i i i'm now i'm 51 years old i have to think about that i'm 51 years old but i feel about 70 75 mm-hmm. about most of the time and so i really get along with that crowd i, I was i was uh telling what, uh michael redding what my the Count De Luna on this on the show and a good friend, and I said, you know, I said I walk around and I will walk up to an eighty year old man and say, hey, that's a great cane. Where'd you get that? You know, and it's funny uh, the the your change of perspective. You know, I say, look at that walker, man, that's nice. Uh, it's got a bench on it. Looks like there's storage. Man, that's awesome. I wish I had one of those. It looks like it has brakes on it. Look at that thing. You know, it's a completely different uh, life than I used to have. That's a, that's great. You, you know, you seem you seem
0: so sharp and i think people that are listening to this and and maybe haven't had had met you yet or knew your story would hear you and say seems didn't would never have guessed that that went through all of this his body went through all of this but you still seem so sharp do you feel are, are there things you have to do to stay at the point where um or is there any effect on on memory or your mental capacity or, or your brain function that 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 is a result of everything that you
1: went through the last five years oh I, my brain is useless um the i have spent the last i don't know how many years. i mean you know, it's time means nothing to me right now so that's what like i'm saying like people probably think it's funny that i don't know what year the pandemic began mm. like that's how my brain is you know because who doesn't know that but i don't you know um and i was worried I'm worried about every bit of this singing thing, of this being here, doing this. I'm worried about every step of it. I mm. was terrified I wouldn't be able to learn the music, because I can't. Re- I'll say to, to my wife or my daughter, "You remember yesterday when we said this?" And they said, "Well, that was earlier today. Mm. That was this morning. Remember the other day? Yeah, that was today." Um, time really doesn't mean much to me, you know. Uh, but then I've, you know, I spent years not looking at the sun, even, you know, yeah. not knowing. And so. Um, you know, it's getting a lot better. And I was taking, uh, this summer I realized that I was taking a, an antiviral, and I'm still taking an antiviral, but they switched. But I was taking, for two years I was taking an antiviral where the common side effects were all psych and, like, confusion and, and anxiety and all this. And I'm, so I, I read that, and I went, well, do you have an alternative? Because I have all that. Mm. <laughs> and uh, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when I go to them and I say, uh I'm confused. I'm this. I'm that. You know, I, I, I don't know what's going on. You know, they say, "Well, you've been through a lot." That's all they say to me. Like, no matter what, I go to them and say, "I'll say, I you know, I still have neuropathy." You know, mm-hmm. I like just yesterday, I was like, "Man, I can't feel my hands," and you know, and the last couple of days, my hands have been shaking, and you know, and I, like I feel like my legs are like jello. But that's just what I feel like. And that's yeah. just you know, I have. Uh, the strangest things happening to my body right now, all the time, you know, and, and, but I'm walking around, everything's fine. As long as I can hide it, yeah. then we're fine. And so you look at me and you say, you can't tell It's cause I'm hiding it, you know? And, and so I'm sick and I have problems, but there are things that, that, you know, it's, it falls into the category then of the stuff that everybody's dealing with.
0: But you, you do, know? and you do so much because you mentioned this earlier and your example of what you'll need to do to get ready for the matinee show of this, of this yeah. performance. You do so much to get your body
1: ready to to take on whatever is ahead of you, right? Sure, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, but that's true anyway. Mm -hmm. You know that that's that's what an opera singer does. You know, everyone has their routine. And a matinee, you got to get up earlier, you know, and you got to get hydrated, and you got to get your voice going, and you Mm got to get whatever hurts on you, and something hurts on everybody. There's no one listening to this that doesn't have something hurts on them right now. And if you're an athlete and you're up in front of people, you have to hide all that, mm-hmm. and so you have to do whatever it takes to be able to uh, to do that. And so for me, I've just got a longer list of things yeah. I have to do than other people. You know. So how would you describe your emotions about returning to the stage? <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated. It's really complicated, and everyone thinks I should be thrilled, and I am. You know. I mean, come on. You, you know. I mean. Of course I'm thrilled, you know, like I'm thrilled beyond imagination, but I was crying about coming here. I didn't want to come here. I didn't want to leave home. I'm not ready, you know? And, uh, I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready for that. But I am. I just have to do it. To because be how, long, do how long has it been since you performed in front of people and, and gone through something like oh, this? Oh, before the pandemic. Yeah. You know, sure. Well, yeah, before the pandemic. Yeah. Not since the pandemic. Well, no, that's not true. This is the first time I've done an opera. In May, on Mother's Day, I did a Mozart Requiem in Iowa City. And James Britton and Marilyn Taylor attended, hmm. touchingly so. Yeah. And uh, the, a lot of people came around for that. Wanted. To, it was my, you know, because I shouldn't, you know, I don't know that I should be dead yet, but I shouldn't be singing, you know. And I got up and did it. And I thought, well, that'll be, Mozart's, the Requiem's fine. It's not, it's, uh, the bass has some great singing, uh, but I'll use music, so I don't have to worry about that. And if I really need to, I probably could sit and sing. And so, yeah, so I took that and it went fine, you know, it went okay. But I was afraid, Mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, it's not easy what we do. You know, and I i was, whew, man, I was afraid of that. And then I went to, I'm a, a resident artist at the Bayview Music Festival up in Petoskey, Michigan every summer and have been for years. And I returned there this summer and it was, I was only there for about a month, but I did, I don't know, 11 or 12 little services or performances. Um, and I was, again, I was worried I wouldn't be able to, you know, remember the lyrics to songs, getting up and singing. But I did and I was, you know, I was fine and my wife kind of was there with me and so she managed me and helped me feed myself and helped me interact with people because I haven't interacted with people in a very long time and certainly, you know, like to to speak face to face with someone, very strange and, uh, you know, I'm cognizant of the fact that that, that I might say or do something kind of stupid. I haven't been around anybody. My brain's not working. And so my wife, she, she went with me and she managed me more than anyone would ever know. But I did great, I had no problem. And so, uh, you know, here I am, and I'm a little nervous because I'm all by myself. I mm-hmm. The very first, you know, I went to the grocery store and filled my my refrigerator full of food, and I took a picture and sent it to my family, and they were very happy because, you know, dad can feed himself, okay, good. And I keep saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm eating, I'm eating. Yeah. But I gotta tell you, being in rehearsals, and singing, and working, and doing all the things I was worried I wouldn't be able to do, has awakened me like my i'm more lucid i'm happier i feel like myself i like everything's going fine i don't have i mean i have physical problems but i don't have any of the oddities that were kind of going around in my head you know trying to come out of this darkness and back into you know to wake up and be alive again you know and out in society you know i feel a lot better from being here, and and what do you want to talk about—the healing power of music, or or the you know, or that that's a real part of of me, or you know, you know, we we you know that part of me is, is getting exercised, and and uh you know, I don't know what it is, but man, it feels good to be here. Man, it feels good to sing. And I told my wife that I, I said, uh, you know, I don't have any debilitation while I'm singing. I don't, I feel like me. I feel normal. I feel healthy. I don't feel debilitated you know uh because i've got uh i'm a little different than other performers i think and i don't mean all other performers but but there are two kinds of people in the world and some people are ones that are completely free on the stage and you know it's like the matrix and you're doing you can make people laugh while you're dying you know and and if the person's not you know you can stay in character and still entertain the room Mm -hmm. and I was wondering if I could still do that, you know, if my brain would be fast enough for that. And it is, and I'm terribly shocked by it, I Hmm. really am. Like after the, we did La Lunch and I was there and they asked me, you know, tell us about your problems. Well, I had cancer, blah, 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 you know, do all that, like we're doing here. And Tashina Vaughn, who's the Azucena for this show, comes up to me at the afternoon rehearsal that day and says, I had no idea. Oh Hmm. my God, I had no idea. And she said, you're here for a purpose. Hmm. And I said, you know, and what I just assume that everybody can tell that something's wrong with me, but it, it's heartening, of course, you know, because of what I found out is that no one, only the people who are my friends in the room, like stage manager, didn't know that there was anything wrong with me. And I said, well, it's probably important that you know that if I fall on the floor and look like I'm dying, just listen to what I'm saying because I might tell you that I'm okay. You know, <laughs> just give me ten minutes, and I'll sure. be all right. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's great to be back.
0: Yeah. Wow. That that's that's a lot of emotions to, to go through, but at the end of the day, you feel, it does seem that you feel in, in, in a, in a comfort zone being, being here. And
1: yeah, it's, uh, this is a, everyone here's family, you know, the, the Piedmont, uh, opera community was one of the major supporters in my illness, you know, and, uh, from, and I said this, I did a radio thing, uh, earlier on this trip and I said you know it's, it's it's board members it's audience members it's patrons volunteers it's the administration and for this to be the place where I get back on stage I I you know yeah that's great yeah that's great and and it's uh such a comfortable place to be and Steve Lacasse and Jamie Albright being the the director and the conductor of the show i i couldn't be a luckier man to have this situation in my return you know
0: yeah well yeah i mean so many examples and and you've mentioned a couple of them from a board member sending you a care package while you were in isolation to uh jamie showing up at, at your performance in 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 iowa earlier this spring yeah it's it's remarkable and i can see why this is it's great to be back here you know, we 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 skipped so many steps that we normally start with in these conversations. But let let's go before all of this. I always love hearing from guests where their love of music came from, where it originated.
1: Hmm. Can you recall when it when it first struck you? Uh, no, I don't. I, uh, there was church church music around me growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say white country gospel quartet stuff like Gaither, the Gaithers, and all that. That's what. Uh, that was the music happening when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And all my, I mean, all I had, on my mom's side, everyone was musical, but no one was trained, you know, and on my dad's side, my grandmother played organ and, so, and both my parents could play piano growing up, uh, but very, very amateur and very, very basic and very, you know, and great, no problem, you know. Um, and my sister took piano lessons when we were kids and I played baseball. I played sports, you know, that I was a boy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but my sister would, would sit and pl- and practice, you know, her stuff for piano lessons. And then being the jerk brother that I was and am and the the <laughs> the person that I am, I had to get up there and see if I could do that better than she. <laughs> and I could, you know, and so.
0: And it probably drove her crazy. That didn't go well. Because yeah? she so, practiced all the time and here you are just.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, I, you know, I, I had. I had talent as a kid, uh, mm. I suppose, and, and I was interested in playing the drums. I had an older cousin who played the drums, mm. and uh, so I got a drum set as a teenager. Like, I mean, man, my, my parents must have loved me to do that, you know, to bring <laughs> that into the house. So I played drums, and I played drums in church, and, and was, uh, started in sixth grade. You know, I was going to be in the band. That's what you did. There was no orchestra, but there was a band. And so I looked at the instruments, and I chose trombone. Because it didn't have it looked like to look at a clarinet just looked like hell. Mm-hmm. All those buttons and and you got to do it just seemed yeah. so complicated. Trombone,
0: and and you just move this thing back and forth, and it seemed thing, right? so simple to me. <laughs> and I thought
1: that's the thing I'm going to play. It's simple, easy, no problem. And my daughter says, "Well, that seems like the hardest thing in the world to me because there is no button, you right. know? And, and I, that's not how I looked at it. And so." Anyway, I have a degree in trombone, you know, and so, and I did that. I'm not sure what else I would have done, although I, th- I really liked biology. And so mm-hmm. maybe I could have done what my daughter's doing and, and go major in biology. I really enjoyed that. I could, all that, I I think it was just that the teacher that was teaching that class in high school mm-hmm. wouldn't let me, you know, take a break during class. Um, But no, I was, you know, yeah, I, I just was drawn to music as a young kid. And then in my undergrad, uh, everyone had to take singing uh, as a class, all the instrumentalists, you had to take uh, class voice and class piano mm. if you didn't already play those instruments. And um, th- I signed up for class voice in my sophomore year. And I remember, like it was yesterday, I remember the room, I remember the teacher. Um, and I realized in that first day, they, she went over the expectations in the syllabus and uh, I was going to have to get up and sing in front of people. And so I dropped the class because I'm not going to sing in mm. front of people. I don't mm. want to do that and of course you know stupid me i'm not going to get out of it it's a degree requirement and so my senior year i had to take this class and uh it was i had signed up for it and one other person who was my roommate who had been in the choir while he was in his education and so the teacher excused him so it was just me and this teacher and we hated each other and so i'm in a room with this teacher you know three three days a week for an hour each and first two hours was me reading out of a textbook and then she would say what do you think about that and me with a horrible horrible attitude as a young buck i said i don't care what do you want me to say (laughs) and she didn't like that so okay third Mm, the third session we're gonna sing and so she vocalizes me and she looks over she's a little short little thing and she poked her head over the music stand and says well you're a bass so i know what you know and so she says well let's uh let's let's uh Let's sing. So she gives me a song. She gives me Broadway Baby, Broadway Baby, Broadway. Mm-hmm. And so, and I didn't like it. Didn't like the song. Thought it was stupid. And, and <laughs> so I, I didn't sing. She plays the intro and I don't come in. She starts again. I don't come in. She says, Is there a problem? I said, Well, if this is what you'd like me to sing, I'd rather read the book. <laughs> right? I'm a horrible person. And so she gets out Lasciate mi morire, which is another one of these, like Caramia Ben, it's one of these beginner Italian mm-hmm. songs. It's one page. And she tells me the diction, and and she writes in, you know, just. And I don't know, I don't have any tools with which to to write down vowels and stuff. And so she's just writing down really simple ways of pronouncing these words that anybody can do. And so I have that with me. And as I'm practicing trombone, I would get that, you know, I want to take a break or whatever. I put the horn down, and I would practice the song a little bit. Mm -hmm. Spent very little time on it, but learned it. Came back the next week, and I was singing it. And she was just amazed that, that I had learned the song in a week. And I'm thinking, but now as a teacher, I realize you have students who are lazy and don't do that. Um, <laughs> I thought it was the easiest thing in the world and took to <laughs> it you know, quickly. And at the end of that semester, she, she recorded me. And I was singing Arias. I mean, I, I was singing King Philip's Ari in my first semester of vocal study as an undergrad. Anyone Ooh. who knows what that is would know that I shouldn't be doing that. Um, but she, I got into the finals of the Dayton Opera Guild Competition, Dayton, Ohio. And uh, uh, I remember they, I got up, I, I went and I sang King Philip's monologue at this thing. And I, I remember going to the, the accompanist, the collaborative pianist, and, and I say, I hand him the music. He goes, Are you doing a cut? Any cuts in this? I said, No. I didn't even know what a cut was. And uh, he says, Okay you know like i mean everyone kind of treated me like that as a young <laughs> singer good i was luck. <laughs> yeah she was kind of giving me repertoire that would excite me trying to convince me to be a singer and yeah. she did yeah you know and but but people had strange reactions and she said to me at one point she says with well, a voice as loud as yours and pitched the way yours is you wouldn't have to be a whole lot better to get work and i thought to myself well that sounds better than what they're telling me about trombone auditions yeah. where 200 people show up and you, and you know it's very competitive that sounds pretty good and so i'm a singer Wow.
0: Okay. That so that is the the answer to the the question that I was going to ask which is how it how you got into the art form of opera as a singer and it sounds like that's that's the story that kind of led you to it as well.
1: Yeah, I I auditioned at CCM right out of undergrad as a trombone mm-hmm. guy and I had done did I do a role yet? I don't think I had I had sung in the like in did I sing in the chorus in the school or something I like I had done extremely little and mm. and but I could sing you know I, I mean as a kid i mean i was I was completely untrained c c m says no, go get some experience and come back you 're a trombone player, you 're not a singer, and so okay and um and then i I auditioned at, at uh University of Miami in Florida mm-hmm. and got in and they offered me a full ride, but I spent the weekend there like like just with a backpack and i just i didn 't like. Florida, And there was a girl in Cincinnati I was kind of chasing. And so I decided not to. I took a year off and I kind of I sang. Uh, my first role was the Mikado in the Mikado. And I so I did that. And I was in the chorus for Opera Columbus for I think it was La Boheme, Elixir of Love and Tales of Hoffman. And went through some like tales of Hoffman and they, they this like chorus i like, 'm in the chorus and in the in the bed on me, on me, you know what and that scene they they had you know like women like rubbing on me and stuff it 's like a harem, like an opium den kind of scene and and, and I'm, so i 'm this trombone player down center with women like pretending that we're together you know and I thought, well, this is all right This <laughs> I could do this this is this is much better than playing in an orchestra.
0: <laughs> that that 'll that 'll drive you in one, in a certain direction for yeah, sure yeah um, so what are tell us about how long you 've been involved with Piedmont Opera specifically
1: Well, I know the answer to this because Connie uh, Quinn said in an interview with me uh, earlier in this rehearsal period that mm-hmm. i was I was first year in two thousand and nine, okay, which I would have said that seems like a long time ago That's wow fourteen years so if you 've been in the Stevens Center for thirty years then i 've been in an awful lot of shows in the Stevens Center yeah percentage almost. wise yeah um, but my first show was Le Nozzi di Figaro, and I remember I showed up, I was doing, at the same time I was doing a Rigoletto in Asheville, a singing Spotify for Chile, and I showed up with a beard like I have now, I have, to the listeners, I have a, a big rat on my face because this is a <laughs> facial show, mm-hmm. facial hair show, uh, and so I, but Figaro is not, like Figaro, you wouldn't need to be clean shaven, and I showed up with an enormous goatee <laughs> for Spotify for Chile, and... I remember talking to Stephen Lacoste, and I hadn't met Stephen Lacoste yet. And we're having this conversation, and he has a strange look on his face, first rehearsal. And I realized, oh, he's looking at my beard. And I said, in the middle of a sentence, I say, oh, and I'm going to shave this for the show. And he goes, oh, thank God. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you knew it you knew it immediately yeah. yeah
1: but that figaro man what a great show mm. that's uh, you know jamie's always said that he he you know it's time to do figaro again but he can't bring himself not say i should say not say time to do not say again but but it's uh, you know he can't bring himself to do it because it was so good last time and i have to tell you you're about to have, I think it's Richard Olasaba is your Figaro for, in the spring. You're doing Le Nozze di Figaro in the spring here at Piedmont Opera. And you guys have to go see that because Richard is a hell of a singer. Mm. He really is. Man, that's going to be good. He won't be as good as I was. <laughs> nice. But I tell you, the all my memories of, of singing here, uh, I would love to sit and talk to everybody. You know, like the... the Production teams to the, about all the fun times we've had in rehearsal, mm-hmm. and all the jokes that didn't make it to stage, like things that 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 you're just trying things, you're just you're working on things, you're you're trying to find, uh, you know bits, you know when you especially when you're doing a comedy, and oh man, there were some times in rehearsals where we really broke up and some of those things ended up on stage and we had to rehearse 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 to get to the point Mm -hmm. where we could do it without laughing ourselves but man there are some things that never that we thought might offend or maybe they didn't tell the story well and it was kind of a you know a useless joke or whatever but but man there's some great times in rehearsals here and those are the things you remember because it's
0: there's there's the question I could ask which is what are the performances that you remember most and, and it's a great description of your very first one, but it's it's the rehearsals and the things that happen not on stage that you probably remember the most about we had
1: a moment in Notze in the rehearsals where I'm under the there's a bench in the final scene in the garden scene and there's a bench. Mm-hmm. Susanna's there and she's she's uh singing and I'm hiding from her you know, and she knows I'm there, but I don't think she knows I'm there. And I have gotten myself under the bench, which is the most ridiculous place to go. If you saw the bench, but it's a comedy, so there we are. And I'm, I've gotten myself under that thing. And in rehearsal, I just felt compelled to reach up. You know, I don't know what she's doing. I can't see her. I'm. She's sitting on literally on top of me, and I reach up and touch the bench from, but from under. Like a, like a connection with her. And apparently, she did the same thing from above at the same exact time. She had the same instinct and touched the bench from above, and our hands were just separated by the bench. And it was such a beautiful moment. And Steve Lacoste got, like, got emotional Hmm. like he's sitting he's right there in front of us and 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 he was oh my god oh my god oh my god like it 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 caused a problem and we had to stop and so then what we did in rehearsal what we did in performance was trying to recreate this thing that just happened spontaneously Mm -hmm. and that show was full of that stuff the cast just really was locked in and everyone knew their roles i mean knew what what their the goal of their role Mm -hmm. in the show and everyone was just on the same page it just really worked out you know well but if you ask me what my favorite thing you know here i think it was probably the second thing i did i think it was the second thing i did which was uh, pinafore hms pinafore mm. i did and i remember uh jamie called me about that and he said this is below you but would you do dick Eye?" and i thought below me what are you talking about you know there's nothing below me let's do this and so man i had fun doing that and uh they threw me over the boat Which I remember very well, and we were talking at uh, we were talking at La Lunch about uh, at our table about how you know in this show they're doing uh, sword fighting, and everyone's on. There's an amazing sword fight, and it's just blades swinging all over the place, and you're standing there, and you should be terrified. But but the the connection with the School for the Arts enables uh, this opera company to really have great fight coordinators, Mm. you know, to put on. Realistic fights, you know that that other companies don't do, and safety, safety, safety. You know that's the only way you can do that. Mm-hmm. Well, jumping off that boat in that thing, they had a, a they took my height and weight, and they had a you know a, a pad that I'm supposed to land on that is built for someone my size to be safe. And Dale Girard trained me how to fall off that thing. Trained me. I don't know. I don't don't know that I'm trained at this trained point. Trained to fall. But, yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, it was a 7 foot drop and so the to rehearse for that and get to get your brain willing to do that that was terrifying yeah. I mean, that was awful and uh just landed right on my face you know on this mat and every night we had to rehearse it and every you know to for safety 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 and they were uh uh and something that someone reminded me about that show that i'd forgotten is uh Steve Lacoste was talking about this in rehearsal the other day that uh i climbed back like I was supposed to make it my next entrance. Uh, and I remember asking, can I climb over the ship for that right, rather than just enter? Yeah, okay. And so we, they, they built a, like a structure behind the set for me to kind of be able to safely climb up over. Mm-hmm. And we made a shtick out of climbing back o- over into the boat and having difficulty doing it. And it was kind of a Tim Conway kind of physicality. And it was very, very, very funny. <laughs> and just one of those things like, like this, this company – will do anything to support the artist and have bringing ideas to the table to make the show better. You know what I mean? And you really yeah. feel the freedom to, to say whatever, to yeah. come up with any idea you can come up with. And in most companies, those ideas get shot down because it makes someone do something, you know, make someone reinforce that set piece and, and kind of make a ladder, make sure. ladder so I can climb over it. A lot of places won't do that. Yeah. But, and, uh,
0: very collaborative, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah oh, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, what is your dream performance? Your dream opera? Well, I don't know. What are you
1: guys doing next? Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I don't know if I've got one. I, I mean, I'd love to sing a Scarpia. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, and maybe my, I might have to get stronger to do that. You know what I mean? I'm not sure I could sing Scarpia right now, but I think maybe Scarpia or some kind of. I've done, been lucky enough to do some Wagner in my career, and maybe some more of that because that's great. But you know. More Verdi, you know, because Verdi. Verdi's great. Verdi, Verdi, Verdi. My daughter, my 21-year-old daughter, for anyone listening to this who thinks they might not want to come see Il Trovatore. My 21-year-old daughter, who is a science major, like she's not some weirdo artist wearing feathers and stuff. Like she's, she's... just a normal person in her playlist on her phone. She has the storm sing from Rigoletto. Like she loves Verdi and I've been, she hasn't seen this show. I said, Oh, you can't wait to see this. You're going to love this show.
0: Mm. All right. So let, let's, let's pick up right there and close out with selling the show. Tell the folks here that haven't yet gotten their tickets and maybe are hearing about this for the very first time. Tell us about, not only the the show itself and why it's special, and and but maybe tell people about your
1: role in it as well. Well, I mean, this show in particular. I mean, Verdi, Verdi, Verdi. Verdi is the king of opera, and people say Puccini, but it's Verdi. Come on now, Verdi, 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 Verdi. The greatest. Oh man, and this is incredibly Verity, This 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 opera the music is incredible. The drama is incredible, and the cast. Oh man, Wait do you hear these people sing? Like I'm. You know, I had told you it was, it was complicated to come here. You know, I wasn't quite sure I wanted to do this. So I was mm-hmm. a little afraid of it and everything. And then at one point, I realized that I was going to get to take place get, take place in recreating for an audience, Il Balen, which is the baritones aria in this show. And I, I thought, wow, that's one of my favorite pieces of music. And I get to do that. Yeah, I, I want to go. Okay, I want to go. I mm. want to go. And I got to tell you, you're going to love love this show it's the best music italian has to offer italian opera has to offer with really you're not going to hear better singers than this it's i mean it's amazing you're going to love it and if if that doesn't motivate you to want to do this then come hear somebody that that is literally a walking miracle and that if if Mm. the the cancer has touched Everybody. You've got a family member, you've got a friend, you are a healthcare worker, you're whatever. And I'm living proof that it's not the end of the world. Your diagnosis, your illness, your thing, you know. I'm and so come be inspired by that, if nothing else.
0: You you've been a fantastic guest. I appreciate you being willing to share so many details about the story and yeah, uh, it's it's remarkable, and so happy that that you're here and getting to perform again, and we all can't wait to see this performance of Trovatore. Good job. Good uh, job. Thank you. Uh, October 20th, 22nd, and 24th, you can get tickets at PiedmontOpera.org. So come see Brian and the rest of this amazing cast put on a tremendous performance starting on October 20th. Brian Banyan, our guest on this episode of In Harmony with Piedmont Opera, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.